Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the special sign cast of the Dr. Christopher Hall Show and Podcast Magazine Sports Category Director Neil Haley. And I'm excited first to welcome Nobel Prize nominated doctor, best selling author, and ER physician, Dr. Christopher Hall. Dr. Hall, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest today. Well, hey, Neil. Yeah, I, you know, I'm doing great. I'm very excited about our guest because he is a very rare, very rare individual. All right. So let's go ahead and introduce him, please. We know Paul. Well, you know, I'm very excited to introduce uh, one of the uh, rare individuals who had the opportunity to play professional uh, baseball and also professional football. An individual who uh, knows a lot about hard work, a motivational speaker, and wow, uh, I'm just very excited to work to show Mr. Edward Martin Smith. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Really appreciate the opportunity to join you. Absolutely. All right, Dr. Hall, what's your first question for Ed? Well, well, sure, no problem. Well, Ed, you know, tell us a little bit about kind of like um, where you grew up and just a little bit about your early childhood life and uh, and those kind of things that got you into interested in sports and into uh, baseball and also into football. Sure. Yeah, I was born and raised over in South Jersey, actually born in Trenton, New Jersey, uh, when I was about four and a half years Old, my mother and father uh, moved me and my brother to a small farm town in South Jersey. You don't normally think of farm towns in Jersey. Everybody considers Jersey like to be city. But yeah, we moved to Browns Mills, New Jersey, and had the opportunity to grow up uh, in a very small community. Um, you know, uh, when we first moved into our, our house in 1974, uh, you know, the community was so new that my brother and I had the full run of the neighborhood. You know, a lot of houses weren't even built yet. So we were running through foundations, riding our bikes and things like that. And, you know, really a, a great uh, area to grow up in, uh, you know, through the late the 70s and 80s, you know, through my days in the high school. As far as sports, you know, it was like uh, I remember the first time my dad was driving us around. I was about five years old and we passed a little league field there in Browns Mills. And I got so excited, you know, I hadn't seen organized baseball before. And, you know, the first thing I said to my dad, you know, I, you know, I want to play baseball. And, you know, it's too late to join that season. But sure enough, the following year, you know, he got both my he got my, my got me involved in Little League. And that was my first taste of baseball. And that, you know, over the course of years, that grew into a, a love of mine. You know, I had a passion for baseball and I also played the other sports like, you know, kids do. You know, we used to run around the neighborhood getting our pickup football games together, going up to the local basketball courts to, you know, get some basketball in during the summer and different things like that. Um, you know, I, I tried football when I was about seven or eight years old, organized football, and I did not like it. I didn't have that aggressive nature yet. So what happened was I, you know, after like the first or second practice, I went home and told my mom, my mom that I didn't want to do that anymore. And she said, well, we don't quit things in this house, so you're going to have to finish this season. But afterwards, we can figure out something else for you. Uh, what happened was I ended up playing baseball all the way through in the high school. I started playing soccer from about nine years old till I was in a freshman in high school, and I played basketball as well all the way in. And then once I got to, to high school, things kind of took off for me in uh, the form of being a well-known athlete. In South Jersey, I had all kinds of different honors and things like that. But that was the beginning of everything for me. Playing two sports, especially at that level, how did you know that you were good enough to play 
professional sports in both both sports? Did you have that idea that were you like? Because again, we all know how difficult it is to be part, involved in professional sports, to be a pro athlete, but to be a pro athlete in both sports. Did you know you had that talent to be able to play in the next level of both? Well, when I was younger, everybody used to tell me about my talent, but I never, you know, my, my mom and dad raised both my brother and I to be humble and, you know, I kind of respect our gifts. And, you know, being an athlete was my gift. You know, a lot of, you know, I'm enamored with other things that others can do, like play instruments and, you know, and act and, and you know, doctors, law, different things, talents that I didn't have. I was fortunate to be an athlete. And like I said, from an early age, people were telling me how good I was. But, you know, I always felt like I had to prove it. It wasn't one of those things where I took anything for granted. So by the time I got into high school, I was being highly recruited across the country, uh, as a tight end. And, you know, and then I had all the scouts showing up toward my junior and senior year for baseball. You know, I knew it was a possibility what ended up happening. I ended up signing my letter of intent after going back and forth, back and forth, taking visits to schools for baseball and football. And, you know, everybody trying to tell me what to do. I decided to, to follow my dream. And I ended up signing my letter of intent in my senior year to go to the University of North Carolina on a full baseball scholarship. And I was going to I told them, you know, what I would do is I would play, I'd take a full baseball scholarship and I'd play football on the side because everybody thought that'd be a waste of time not to give football a shot. But I didn't want football to be the dictator of that. I didn't want to go to school on a football scholarship and then be told I had to give baseball up. So I went that route. Uh, but then what happened, the Chicago White Sox came along in the seventh round of the uh, draft that year in 1987. They selected me and went back and forth and haggled with them, you know, over a little money and school in my contract and things like that. You know, as far as, you know, knowing I was going to be a professional athlete, I never knew it, but it sure was my dream. It's what I, you know, you know, a lot of kids grow up and they, you know, they know early on, they want to be this or they want to be that. I knew what I wanted to be. I didn't know it was going to happen. And then the way my career kind of unfolded, which I'm sure we'll get into, because obviously I went, uh, right out of high school and started playing professional baseball for nine years. And then, you know, the journey took a turn, but like I said, it was a lot of hard work, sleepless nights, a lot of uh, blood left on the, on both fields uh, when it was all said and done. All right, Dr. Hall, your next question. Wow. This is an incredible, incredible story. And, you know, we know it takes a lot of discipline and hard work to, to, to be successful in those sports. And, and literally there's thousands of, of uh, uh, kids, hundreds of thousands of kids across the U.S. and world who want to who want to play those sports. And so, you know, what what are some of those principles you would say, Ed, that that these young people should have? You know, as they strive to uh, to reach those heights that you that you reached. Well, one of them is the discipline. You know, it's it's I think it's an overused word sometimes, but I think it it comes down to if you want something, you have to you know, kind of put yourself on that track and stay on that track. And a lot of times, you know, especially with young kids, they, they get pulled in so many different directions. Uh, you know, they, they, they want to do this. They want to do that. And I'm, I'm all for experimenting and figuring out what you want to do. Once you decide on a path, you have to have that discipline to stay the course and then also expect those bumpy days and those bad nights, you know, uh, throughout my career, as I was trying to climb the minor league baseball ladder, Man, you talk about some nights where I was questioning, you know, what did I get myself into or what would have happened if I would have went different routes? But, you know, you sometimes our, our biggest enemies are ourselves because we talk ourselves out of, you know, success and, and, and chasing those dreams, you know. So for me, you know, even through everything, you know, it was the discipline to, to stay the course, uh, the ability to sometime – you know, no, it's not good now, but I got to fight through this and and just continue on. And then the one last thing I always tell people, you got to enjoy what the heck you're doing or what you're chasing. You know, I got to a point at the end of my baseball career after nine years, I was no longer enjoying it or having fun. And that's why I made the change and the pivot to, 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 to try football out. But, you know, once I decided it wasn't something that, that passion and that fire was gone, I didn't stick around just to do it because I was supposed to. And, you know, like I said, you got to love what you're doing and because a lot of sacrifice comes with chasing those dreams. If you're not fully engaged in it, love it, dedicated to it, you know, you might as well go find something else to do because you're wasting your time. Now, when you talk about losing the passion 
for baseball. Why? Why did you lose that passion? Neil, I had been playing for almost nine years, almost 10 years, and I got right to that point where I was in the middle of the steroid era. I played professional baseball all the way up to AAA from 87 to 95, which was my last season. And in the, the 94 seasons, when the strike happened for the big leaguers, you know, I finished my season uh, playing with the Chicago Cubs that year, uh, signed a contract with the Indians after going over and playing some winter ball in the Dominican Republic that, that winter, which was the winter of 94. And when I came back, the game itself was in chaos. You know, they obviously had first World Series missed since, you know, the, the, the days of World Wars, you know, that type of thing. And it was just uh, a sad time for baseball. You know, I went to camp with the Indians honoring my AAA contract. And what happened was that whole spring training at the time, the manager, um, Mike Hargrove, every day was coming across from the big league uh, camp where they had the, you call them scab or replacement players, you know, playing in place of the big leaguers. And he was talking to me every day, trying to get me to come over. Ed, you know, I need you over here. You know, I want to give you a great look. This is, you know, this will be an opportunity for you. And, you know, once this all breaks, you know, this will be a feather in your cap. And, and I just kept telling him, Mike, I signed a AAA contract. I'm going to honor that. I'm not crossing any lines. And when the strike broke, you know, I started that season in AAA. And at one point, I was leading the American Association. I was in Buffalo with the Indians, leading the American Association in home runs average. I was hitting like 375 over the first month and change, you know, on my way thinking, this is the year I'm going to get noticed. And when the strike broke, they brought all the 40-man roster players back. And, you know, it was a lot of chaos because a lot of guys had to be who had been promised things by big league, you know, major league baseball, you know, cross the line, come help us. We'll help you when it's all over. A lot of those guys got blacklisted. They were just exiled from the game. Meanwhile, I had done nothing wrong, but at the same time, I felt like I was punished. Uh, the Indians at, at, for no apparent reason at all, you know, they toiled with me for a little while, left me up there in AAA. At one point I sat on the bench for 14 days in a row didn't pinch hit, didn't play in a double header. I mean, I was literally just sitting there and they, even guys on my team were trying to figure out what is going on. Why are you not playing? I was like, I don't know. I can't tell you, you know, after the 15th or the 14th day, we get back from a road trip. They put me in the lineup. I have a good day. Get called into the manager's office after the game. And then, and they want to send me back to double a, uh, and you're talking about breaking. I was like breaking a horse's spirits, man. I, after everything I'd done to be, sent back down to double A and I ended up going back down there. And after about a month or so, you talk about losing the passion for the game, Neil, that's when I decided, Hey, it's been almost a decade. I've been chasing this. And if this is my reward and I'm now back on the bus tours, riding, I was in, went from riding or flying planes around the country. When I was in uh, Buffalo, we're going to new Orleans, Oklahoma city, you know, di you know different places. Now all of a sudden I'm in the Eastern league, 14 hour bus rides from, um, uh, Canton, Ohio to Portland, Maine and different, you know, and I, you talking about, I just knew it was time for to do something else. And, you know, like I said, I, I had some sleepless nights trying to figure out what was next. And, you know, bait, football came into my mind, even though I hadn't played football for almost over a decade, but that was something that popped into my head. And I, as I say, the rest is history. I'm sure you'll ask me a question of how that all came to be, but that to answer that question of what broke my spirits, uh, that's what broke my spirit. Oh, my gosh. And that's called politics. And people don't understand it. There's politics in everything in life. And there you go. Baseball, that's what happened. And you made the right decision for sure. All right, Dr. Hall, next question for Ed. Oh, well, no problem. You know, just kind of transitioning over, you know, like you said, for nine years. And, um, and, and just had to have the strength and, and willpower to transition over. And so... Actually, ends up playing in NFL and, and has an NFC championship, you know, with the Falcons in the it's nineteen ninety eight. Now, tell us how that felt uh, to to be on a championship team. Yeah, that was unbelievable. You know, to to make the transition, you know, I, and it wasn't easy. I finished that baseball season in ninety five. I talked to my brother, who was by then uh, he's two years younger than me, but he was going into his third year in the NFL with the New Orleans Saints after playing four years at Notre Dame under Lou Holtz. And I called him one night and asked him about this crazy idea I had about getting back into football after, like, like I said, a decade of not even playing the game, not in college or anything like that. And he encouraged me and I took this shot, you know, I finished that baseball season and the following that the winter 
the fall and winter of 1995, I actually came out here to Arizona, which is where I reside today. But I got in touch with some people, worked, uh, started to get my body into football shape, uh, thought I could get a couple workouts, somebody to take a look at me in the NFL, and that didn't work out. But the following spring, I ended up uh, being uh, presented to the World League at the time, which eventually turned into NFL Europe. But they heard about me, gave me one of the teams out of the eight teams, gave me a shot to come over there uh, to their camp in Atlanta, you know, quick workout. And if you look good, we'll keep you. If not, you know, we'll let you go on your way. I ended up going there today, camp, uh, had, which had already started. I was like a week and a half, almost two weeks late getting there, but beat out some guys that were actually uh, NFL players had played in the league, you know, beat some of them out, went over to Europe, uh, played for the Birmingham or the, uh, the um, uh, uh, Frankfurt Galaxy that season. And by the time I got back out, that season was a spring season. By the time I got back here in June, my agent was getting calls from the NFL, went into my first camp. And as you mentioned, you know, I spent that first year uh, on the practice squad, in, practice squad in Washington. The next two years, I was on the active roster in Atlanta. And then on that 98 team, uh, the Dirty Birds, man, we actually went all the way to the Super Bowl. You know, it was an unbelievable, magical ride. Uh, ended up losing to the Broncos in that Super Bowl. But for me to just not that long ago be riding buses in minor league baseball and then all of a sudden be standing on the field, and I'll be honest with you, just being on the field in general, but, you know, because I remember days, it could have been a Sunday against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That felt like the Super Bowl for me because I, to, to make that change and be where I was after all the toiling in the minor leagues. But then, like I said, you fast forward and to be coming out of a tunnel on a Super Bowl Sunday was unbelievable. And I, I still get chills just talking about it and thinking about that whole experience, you know, not just that that Super Bowl, but the, the incredible ride, that two-year ride with the Falcons going from a seven – well, actually, the first year I was here in 97, we started the season one and seven, finished seven and nine, and that started the roll next year, 14 and two, you know, NFC champions going to a Super Bowl – unbelievable and I, I tell you man you talk about a lot of hard work that went into that and you know overcoming some what I call incredible odds uh, to be standing on that stage like I said still gives me chills just to talk about it today you know it's you're, you talk about that Ed and you talk about specifically enough the Super Bowl experience what was your fondest memory of the, that week the Super Bowl weeks right you know the media week and then also leading up to finally the Super Bowl you have some favorite memories Oh, yeah. Well, you know, even after we won the NFC Championship game up in Minnesota, 11-point dogs, you know, then going home and spending the week in Atlanta before we finally flew out to Miami, you know, it was just I'd never felt like fandom like that and been on top of, you know, the sports world, and it was unbelievable. And then when we got down to Miami, everything was you know, like everything from we get there and every one of us, every player had a rental car waiting in the parking lot for us. We had not only our big, huge suite at the hotel. We had another a secondary suite that we could have for our families. You know, the biggest thing for me, my mom and dad came down. My, you know, my brother came out. He had was with the San Francisco 49ers that year. We actually beat them to go to Minnesota to go to the Super Bowl. So we had our memories, you know, playing on the field against each other three times that year because we were in the same division. And then, you know, to have him down there, mom and dad, and I flew my agents out, get, got them tickets as well. And just, like I said, the, my, my biggest memory is the night, the day before the game, our final walkthrough. We had to get together. We're out there on the field. First time we'd seen the field, we were practicing that week at the University of Miami's facility. First time we'd seen the field, you know, our final walkthrough, and every blade of grass and every just spot of paint was just magnificent. And the field was pristine. And I remember we went and took our team picture and then we had a little bit of time before we had to get out of there because the Broncos were coming in. And I remember like just going off to the side and I was, you know, I was sitting like kneeling on the field and just the thought of, oh my God, I'm playing in a Super Bowl tomorrow. It was the most amazing wow. thing just to, you know, to, and then what happened is, you know, you're not paying attention. I'm actually looking at it right now. A photographer caught a picture of me with the Super Bowl 33 emblem in the background, just kind of, kneeling and in, in my thought and that was later put in a paper in my hometown uh, it was an AP picture they shared it back there and I still have that memory I'm looking at it right now of myself 
just pondering that moment, how, you know, just amazing, you know, and you start having those thoughts of, man, maybe I'll even catch a pass tomorrow now, you know, I'll be in the end zone. You know, you start thinking like a little kid, you start thinking the night before the big game, what the possibilities could be. So, you know, it's just amazing. Like I said, even now, just the the, the thought of it, it, it's just to have that experience and it wasn't, you know, wasn't given to me. I had to go take it, but that experience and just being a part of that, and then still having some of my teammates that we all stay in touch and uh, to be able to talk about that is amazing. I hope I hope Radio Row for me next year, wherever the Super Bowl is going to be next year. Maybe we'll see each other at, at Radio Row next year because again, it's actually it's in Arizona. Actually, it's here. Oh, wow. That'll be Yeah. So I'll, and I'll be doing I have my radio show. I've already planned. I'll be out there myself so i definitely look forward to seeing you neil we'll have to wow. do something next year for all sure. right radio row arizona here we go super bowl and maybe <laughs> maybe somehow the steelers well kenny pickett can lead them <laughs> that would be awesome we'll, we'll see we'll see you know I, I'm, I'm i'm a pit fan as well ed okay there you go. all right all right go ahead chris for your next call, question for ed i mean it's just a fabulous story i mean like he's overcome like you said incredible and um and, and has transformed that into, you know, he, near to his heart is the motivational, inspirational speaking. And so, and, you know, talk a little bit about that. I mean, what, you know, what message, you know, are you trying to get across to young people and whether it's business executives or other leaders, you tell us what, what, what's the message you want to get across and you're speaking to people. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. I, you know, I consider myself a little bit of a, a, a chameleon because I have so many different type of stories that I like to share with my audiences. Well, you know, whether you're talking about overcoming the incredible odds or chasing your dream, you know, the, the fact that, you know, I had so many people earlier in my life tell me, you got to go play football, you know, you got to go play football. And I chose to chase my own dream, you know, and then not giving up on that dream, but at the same time, knowing when it was time to pivot. So, you know, those type of messages. I also talk to uh, businesses about leadership and also about, uh, team building. One of the things, one of my favorite programs that I put together, it revolves around team building and how, like, a, for instance, a sports team can resemble a business. And when I talk about that, you know, you think about any business, you got to have your CEO or ownership, you have to have your management, you've got to have your coach, and then your players. And then you can, I like to break it down even from there. In one of my uh, programs, I talk about how every every business has got to have that franchise quarterback you know everybody you every you might have three or four people in the your organization that think they're the franchise quarterback but you can only have one and that one leader and then you have your others you know, like your I break it down where you got your offensive linemen those sometimes can be your IT guys or the the grunt guys the only time you hear from them uh like in the NFL is when something goes wrong if there's a flag it's against the offensive lineman that's the only time you're going to hear his name all through the the day and then you know you got your Swiss army tight end uh, who can do it all. They can do sales. They can sometimes step in and be an IT guy. So those are, you know, that's just a few of the things I love to talk about. As far as the, the young kids, I, I try to encourage them to, one, chase their dreams, but also enjoy life as much as they can. I think with all this internet and different things and a lot of, like, they have shocks to their systems. They grow up so fast and they don't enjoy the the, the younger days of their lives. I look, my, you know, back at those Days like I mentioned earlier, my brother and myself running, you know, just wild through, uh, you know, the neighborhood and having fun like little kids. And, you know, and and sometimes, like I said, these kids, they grow up too fast. But, you know, I just, you know, I encourage them, like I said, to chase those dreams, but also enjoy life, respect their parents. You know, not, not it's not a lot of cliche stuff because I I go deeper in, and into the stories. I use specific examples from my journey to match the audience I'm talking to, but I really enjoy, if you can't tell, I really enjoy it. And I enjoy sharing, uh, which is odd because I'm pretty much an introvert when it comes to you know, personality, <laughs> yeah. but I, you know, between all this radio and podcasts and speaking and, you know, it, it brings it out of me when I'm excited to, t- to talk about different things and, and get a specific message across to an audience. You know, and it's it's about the whole thing of speaking in front of an audience, performing in front of an audience. Ed, you got the opportunity. I did as well. I was a former professional wrestler, so I one time did WWE where I got to be in front of 15,000 fans at Omaha Civic Center against Crush and Savia Vega. 
and I got some licks in, you know, I'm a legitimate 610. It was like a tryout match for me. <laughs> I've been in crowds of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 8,000, and maybe 50 in performing and wrestling. And I've gotten to speak in front of 100, 200, 300, 400 people, either virtually or in person. How much of a rush is there to provide in speaking in front of an audience and versus playing in front of 60, 80,000, 100,000 people? That's a good question, Chris. You know, the thing, the thing about, or a good question, Neil, the thing about speaking and I'll talk about playing in front of those crowds and you'll notice because you've done it before. It's especially when you're in a team environment, you're out there and you're trying to do your job. You try to focus it all out. So you're not necessarily looking, you're not focused on one person in the crowd. You hear the 70 plus either cheering for you or cheering against you. And I've been on both ends of that. And I remember going up to Minnesota for that NFC Championship game in 98. And it was, or, you know, 98 season, it was unbelievable. I mean, at one point, you know, they got that big Viking horn and we're getting ready to kick off and they do that Viking oh my, horn. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and it's like, I couldn't, I actually couldn't even hear myself. I screamed at the top of my lungs and I couldn't hear myself over the noise. So it's, it's funny, you get out there and, you know, you just focus that out when you're speaking I don't care how big the crowd is. It could be 50. I've spoken, spoken in front of, you know, 10, 15, 100. And like you said, thousands. When you're speaking, all eyes are on you. And it's like it's an entirely different rush because the focus is on you. And now, you know, you're challenged to perform not in a group. but And, you know, you as a wrestler, you had someone you were wrestling against. So yeah. you were performing, but yeah. it was, it was exactly. still singing. Yeah, yeah. I, I ended up having to get heat with the crowd and focus on many people in the crowd. But yeah. again, Ed, I'm a former college basketball player, so I played in front of 500 people, yeah, 700 people, maybe 1,000 people in the WPL finals. Uh, so I understand what you're saying. We're not focusing. You're just looking at all the noise, not focusing on an individual person. When you're exactly. speaking or when you're <laughs> doing something else, and Chris, don't you agree? It's basically you really put your attention on an audience. And that's that's I think that's more of a rush. Yeah, it can be, especially when you do it well. When you don't do it well, Neil, you know, because we've all had those bad days and it's oh, like, oh, my. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I saw that in Clubhouse where I would have a thousand, you know, 500 people speak in front of 300, 400. And then one day it's like six. So you, yeah. you, you feel it in, in that virtual world as well. Or, you know, it just depends on what guests you're on a podcast or how much of an audience. It's all fun. All right, Chris, next question for Ed. Oh, with no problem, you know. And um, so I wanted to ask Ed a little bit about just transitioning from professional sports back into uh, just like, I guess you would describe normal everyday life for, <laughs> for, for, for the normal average American. And kind of what, 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 what is that like? And how would, what does it take for these professional athletes to make that transition successfully? Well, you know, that's a great question, Chris. And I remember when I was right around 2001, you know, it was time for me to hang the, the, the cleats up. And I didn't want to hang them up. It was just a situation where I was 30, early 30s. You know, it was harder to find a job when, you know, they're looking for younger and cheaper in the NFL. And, you know, I finally got to a realization. My last year uh, played in the XFL, actually, the original version of it in 2001. And after that, you know, the offers kind of just kind of went away. And it was one of those situations where, okay, I took a little bit of time off. And then I had to really figure out, Okay, I'm 32, 33 years old. Where do I go from here? You know, what 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 am I going to do? And fortunately for me, I had a background, you know, which was I was blessed because my mother, especially and my dad, it was all about education. It was never all about sports. It was all about being a better person. It wasn't about, you know, how many balls I could hit or catch or anything like that. So once I was done, I realized it took me a little time. You know, it took about a year, about six months to a year where, you know, I, I felt like I'd earned a little bit of rest, you know, uh, just going to the gym a little bit, keeping the body in shape, uh, figuring out next moves and things like that. And one day, you know, I have things just happen sometime. One day a gentleman saw me in the gym and he recognized me from my day. I was still in Atlanta at the time and recognized me from being a Falcon and, and uh, wanted to talk to me about getting into his business, which was financial planning. And I explained to him, Hey, look, I, 
never done anything like that. But after talking to me, he, you know, he's like, look, your mind is what I'm looking for. You know, you and your, you know, what you could bring to the table. So, you know, I took a chance at that. I ended up getting licensed in all aspects. You know, I didn't take an easy way out. I went and got my series six, 63 life and health annuities. I was, oh, fully, I was fully invested in being a financial planner, which was a good start into the corporate world gentlemen. But after a couple of years, I didn't, I realized that's not what I necessarily wanted to do, but it was a good training episode for me because it got me away from sports and into the corporate world. And then over the course of the next bunch of years, you know, it was kind of figuring this out, figuring out like, you know, early two thousands, uh, eventually I settled on, you know, a few things in terms of uh, my life. I, I started uh, working in uh, the IT world. I was, uh, uh, a business development manager for a company, which I still do to this day. That's an industry I've still been in. But then, you know, with extra time on my hand, not dead, totally dedicated to, to sports, I started looking at other aspects, which in 2005, I had been encouraged so many times after people heard my story, the first thing they would always say, man, you need to write a book, you know, and I kept thinking, I don't have yeah, anything yeah, yeah. to say, you know, and eventually I heard it enough gentlemen and i Went ahead and did it. My autobiography was, and which is something I personally wrote, was published in 2005. Uh, it's called Easy Does It, The Journey of a Lifetime. Uh, since then, uh, you know, I've, I've been in radio for 11 years. Cele I've just celebrated five years with my show, uh, Easy Sports Talk, out here in Phoenix uh, back in March. I do the podcast, I believe in the Cardinals podcast. I guest host on other shows like yourself and others. I do ESPN spots. Uh, then I do the, the, the travel and speak as well. So uh, to, to answer your question, Chris, the transition was one that I think I was prepared for by my parents, not making my entire life just about sports. You know, I knew yeah. there had to be a second chapter. Exactly. And I, there are a lot of, and you'll notice, Neil, especially, there are a lot of athletes when they're done, they have absolutely no idea, no idea. No idea. What, what they're going to do or direction. And then some of them, they it just they can't get away from the fact that they're no longer being cheered on the field or they miss the crowd and you there's no rush for standing out on the field. Nothing I do in my business life is going to give me that rush of coming out of a tunnel on NFL Sunday. But if I take the same pride in what I'm doing, that's what it's all about. Exactly. All so right. yeah. I've learned that lesson, uh, you know, like I said, over the course of time. All right, so now we're going to jump to the podcast, Chris, and then Chris, we're going to have a final question. I got about a bunch of questions on podcasting. Ed, it's my experience. Okay, you started out in radio and you had your radio show. What made you want to do a podcast and kind of look at and kind of compare the the difference between radio and podcasting? Because if some of these athletes aren't able to really describe that, but it seems like your business acumen and understanding specific things, you really do see the differences between radio and podcasting. So I'm a dual thing. This is going to be on radio as well. I'm on syndicated radio and podcasting, and I have a television show. So I understand exactly the differences but mm -hmm. kind of tell me why you decided to do a podcast, first of all, and then tell me the difference between podcasting and radio. Well, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I started doing the podcast because I was approached by, you know, Believe. And, and, and the, you know, what happens is you, you do different things like the radio and, and uh, you know, I was doing other people's shows. And you if you're good at it, then people recognize you. And I, I, I take that as a compliment that companies like Believe and some others have been adamant about, hey, we want you to be a part of what we do. For me, the difference in radio, because I started radio back in 2011, my own little show called Easy Sports Talk originally, which is the name of this show as well, but it was based on, it wasn't based on, you know, talking about specific teams or anything like that. I was, it was an hour show, Saturday nights, little small local station here in Arizona. I was talking about stories from my career, situations, you know, different things like that. And then I did that for almost two years and then took a break and then got involved with the NBC Sports Radio here, doing some different shows, uh, you know, guesting on them. And then my spot came open five plus years ago. <laughs> Excuse me. I took advantage of jumping on full time. The, for me, the difference in radio is it's a weekly kind of commitment where every Saturday from 10 to 12 out here, I've got to bring specific topics. You know, we, we follow the local teams and, you know, and, and the national stuff as well. But I've got to be up on everything local. I've got to deliver uh, entertainment. i got to be up. You know, the, the difference for me with podcasts 
is one, it's the scheduling of them. You can kind of do them according to what your schedule is. Cause you know, I do the believe podcast with my uh, partner, radio partner, and he's my uh, podcast partner. We do them like when the, when like during the football season, we do them every week, but right now we do them on a, every other week basis, depending on what's going on with the Cardinals. And they have been giving to us with all the Kyler Murray news and stuff like that. But for me, podcasts, a little, I'm not going to say they're, they're, I'm looking for the word. I would say they're, you can be a little more ad living exactly. on the podcast. And you're yeah. not, you're not controlled as much for sure. Exactly. Ah. They're, they're less structured. So that's the perfect word to kind of, to, to kind of describe them. Exactly. Chris, go ahead and uh, tell us everybody, um, summarize Ed Smith. Chris, go ahead. Wow. We're no problem. I mean, again, his vast experiences are, are really hard to summarize in a couple of cents, but I think we can say easy does it. The journey <laughs> of my time. Um, he's given some great points, you know, to young people uh, and, and to people who are out there who, who need motivation, you know, um, take on those incredible odds, believe in yourself, choose your dreams. Okay. Love what you do. Okay. And so, wow, we've just uh, had, a, had a great interview here. Uh, with one of our standouts, one of our great Americans. And so, wow, we're so excited uh, that you came on the show today. And thanks a lot. Man, I can't appreciate you guys enough. And anything I can do to to, to support you guys, let me know. I'll wow. definitely let everybody know about this uh, time on with you. But like I said, you guys are great, and I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate it too, Ed. Best place we can go to listen, go to Believe Podcast Network, and it's available in all different podcasts. And where can we check you out, Ed? Best place social um, media wise. Social media wise on Twitter and Instagram at Ed Smith Speaks. And uh, if you want a copy of the book or if you want to just check out my website, it's edsmithspeaks.com. That'll tell you all about my story. Uh, there's a tab on there if you'd like to buy and purchase the book. And what happens is the books come directly from me and I sign every one of them individually when you uh, get them from the site. So that'd be a great way if you want to learn more about me, edsmithspeaks.com and uh, Ed, at Ed Smith Speaks on all platforms. All right. Thanks, Ed. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate you guys. All right. That was the Dr. Christopher Hall Show and Sports Category Director Neil Haley's Podcast Magazine. Guys, take care. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. And oh my, we're going to talk higher education with my expert guest today. Again, he wrote How to Become a Better Procrastinator. Patrick, Dr. Patrick Shanahan, how are you, Dr. Patrick? And yeah, we've been talking procrastination, but today we're going to go into another part of your expertise that people might not know, especially on you know, Facebook or people who have been listening to the podcast and especially my radio show, that you're involved in higher education. Explain that and then we'll get into the topic. Uh, yeah, thanks, Neil. I've been involved in higher education since 1989. And so it's a, a big chunk of time. And we've been on about 30, 300 campuses over the last 30 plus years, uh, usually doing strategic planning, presidential transitions, working with board facilitation, and, and also executive teams. So that's kind of the, a big bucket of our work. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's definitely a big bucket. And higher education is changing, isn't it? And so our topic today, we're going to talk about, you know, a bunch of different topics involving higher education. First, the student debt. Kind of explain what you want to talk about with that. Well, it's, it's a $1.7 trillion, right? And there's a lot of uh, clatter and clutter and conversations around kind of getting rid of that. I don't think that's ever going to happen. It's way too much money. But I think we have to make uh, schools much more affordable for a whole lot more people. And uh, I think you're going to see forgiveness of some debt. You know, with the, Right now they're banding about $10,000, and that's the beginning. But to say that we're going to wash away $1.7 million, I think is wishful thinking. Exactly. And the cost of college is going on and universities keep going on the rise, right? So it, it's rising and rising. The last two years, it's been kind of stable because, you know, the COVID situation, but now tuitions are rising again. And that's going to cause a lot of problems for a lot of people because students now, we have less, we have 1 million less students coming into higher education in this past year. That's students cool. are taking some time off. They're thinking about this and their parents are thinking about this. And the cost of higher education, we have to get some really smart people. The good news in higher ed is they have a lot of smart people. They got to reimagine and rethink how do we reduce the cost of higher education so more people can have access to it. So jobs, 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 credential. So we kind of, you know, talking about specifically enough jobs, the great reset, right? Lots of people retiring. Lots of people are not 
working this, the traditional types of jobs. Where do you see that, especially, you know, credentials that you can get from going to college and especially, you know, an MBA or even looking at certain undergrads or certain things that you need certifications. Let's talk a little bit about, a bit about that. Well, I think that the, there's a millions and millions of people who have gone to college and not completed college. So they have some courses and some programs done and uh, they don't have an end degree and yet they have a fair amount of student debt. So they don't up their chances for having better jobs, yet they have this albatross around student debt. So that's really important for us to think through. And the notion around jobs, 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 when I was going to college, you figured you'd go to college and you'd get a job somehow, but it's really about an educated citizen and having a holistic education and all those things, all good notions. And now, and faculty might not want to hear this, but parents are saying, when my son or daughter comes out of school, I want to make sure they get a job and hopefully a good paying job. So we have to be sensitive to the, how the needs and aspirations of parents and students have changed dramatically over the last 10, 15 years. And I think we'll be able to do that. I think there's a lot of resiliency in higher education. And if you just look at what, what COVID did, if I would have said three years ago that we're going to go hybrid and online in higher education, someone would have said I was crazy. Can't do it. It's impossible. And yet higher ed did do it in about two and a half weeks. So there's a lot of resilience. There's lots of creativity, a lot of wonderful, dedicated people. But we're not going back home, in my opinion. Some a lot of the faculty members I talk to and deans and number of presidents I think people are saying, oh, okay, things are going to calm down and we're going to go back home. And I don't think we're going back home. We're going to have to go forward. And it's going to look dramatically different. All right, let's talk about mental health issues in colleges and universities. It's, it, it's going up, isn't it? It's, it's, it the research is horrible uh, in that it's a pervasive problem that hasn't been talked about. And, and now they are talking about it. I just read a report that 15% of our undergraduate students, 15%, this is tens of millions of students, uh, have contemplated suicide. Oh God! I mean, that's unbelievable. So we're going to have to put, you know, lots of money, resources, therapists, counseling, all those kinds of things to support the students through these very, very, very difficult times. But 15% is extraordinary, extraordinary. And we have to do something about that. That's one of the things we have to fix. Now we talk about now all the face of higher education and it changes. We talk about costs, but you're seeing things of what's happening in the higher education system is really interesting in the way we're changing things. You talked about hybrid education, face-to-face -to, -face to online, but what about these some other things we're seeing in, the, in the higher education and changes? Well, I think that the, the costs we talked about of higher education has, has got to get managed pretty well. And there's a little bit of a, a glitch here in that uh, I've done a lot of work with Nakuba over the years. They're the National Association of Business Officers, and it's a great association, and chief financial officers and business officers are smart and dedicated people. And they've done some surveys a couple years ago that said a lot of them were very nervous about their financial model. Like if you have 100 students don't come, you've got some problems in River City. Not the billionaires. There's about 100, 125 billionaire institutions about uh, in private. Public, it's about 75 or 85. Those 200 institutions have nothing to worry about. You can throw $100 million at something and you can probably fix it. But when you have $40 million in your endowment, you can't throw money anywhere. And so you're going to see, we got to do something about the cost of higher education. Uh, the other thing is that you're going to see um, a, a, a lot of presidential transitions. That's something I've written a couple of books about and a number of articles. And usually there's about 4,000 campuses, give or take, uh, in, the, in the United States. And the attrition or the presidential exits is about two to 300 a year, just in normal, natural circumstances. And we're beginning to see signs of presidents are leaving fast and furiously. So you're going to see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more presidential transitions. Oh Most of them are white males in their 60s, right? So they're thinking about retirement. The president's job has gotten very, very, very difficult. It's always pretty challenging. And now it's really hard. And a lot of people are just saying, I don't think I can do this. I need to do something differently. The problem with that is if you have 500 or 600 leaving in the next couple of years, can you, there's no bench. Is there a pipeline of presidential candidates and aspiring presidents, aspiring presidents that can really kind of do the job tomorrow? And I don't think that's that's happening right now. So that's a big issue that we're going to see lots of transitions and not enough fill of really great presidential candidates uh, helping our campuses in the future. Higher education, things change, right? And talk yeah, about the pressures that they are under because they got to bring in the money. And if money's decreasing, 
well, then there's, they're going to figure things out. And that's, that goes back to another conversation we could have on higher ed as yeah. well is what is the value of a higher education? It's important. However, how can you, how do you really value that and explain that to kids that have gone through the last two to three years online during COVID, especially in certain parts of the country. And now are like, well, I can just do something online, something else and go get a job versus go to school and have all this debt. Right. I can get take a course here and there when I want to with where I want to go to. I might take a course at Harvard, one at Stanford and one in my local community college. So they can they have lots more choices than they did five years ago. The other thing you're seeing a lot is the retention issue. Retention is kind of one of those hidden conversations we don't really kind of elevate uh, and realize that you've got a freshman that comes in and you spend a lot of money, time and resources bringing them in. And the dip between freshman and sophomore year is severe. It's like a cliff. Well, we can't afford that. And so you have to build in retention strategies to keep people there for four, five, and six yeah. years. When I was going to college, it was a four-year graduation rate. That was the, the standard. Yeah. Now they've extended that. Now it's six years. You know, and here's one reason why. Because before you could have a retention rate of kids that just couldn't make it through college. Now you got to keep most of them there. So you're going to have to come up with better tutoring programs. You're going to have to come up with better resources to get kids college ready, but they're not getting college ready in high school and, and retain more kids than just flunk them out. And it's not their fault because they don't have the preparation and they don't have the acumen for college, but they're going to have to figure out ways to be as good as the community colleges are of keeping kids for those two years. And well, that I think the community colleges really have a huge part to play. Now, so this is something interesting. In 2008, we had the financial crisis. Uh, community colleges uh, increased their population by 15, 20%, kind of nationally. Now that's not happening. People aren't going back to community college, even though we have all this people leaving and retiring and finding themselves and all that kind of stuff there. So no one has the answer for that yet. I mean, we've got to figure out what that, why aren't people coming back to get retooled and re-credentialized in our community colleges. But our community colleges can really prepare students so they are going to a four-year institution and are very successful. The research on someone going to a community college and actually finishing the undergraduate degree, it's about 15%. So it's mm. not a huge number. We've got to up that to 25 and 30 and 40%, hopefully. Now, some people just want an AB degree. I get it. And some people want to go to community college and learn how to you know, do, do something with cars or welding or electricians, all great professions. They pay a lot of money. They get a job. So community colleges can do both the academic piece and also the occupational and vocational piece. And it goes back to, again, finding the best educators possible. And it's challenging, especially being an ed educator during COVID. Hopefully now with COVID transitioning away, let's hope, then you'll see those numbers change for sure. Best place we can find information on you, where can we go? Uh, the SantaHandGroup.com, uh, there's plenty of information on there. But I want to see if I can mention two other things. Yes, yeah, sir. Uh, the, there's going to be a lot of mergers and closings and consolidations over the next five to ten years. And you begin to see, you know, maybe 20 a year right now. But I think over time, the next two or three, four years, you're going to see lots of them because smaller colleges just can't afford to stay stay in business. So you're going to see a lot of mergers and closing. And the last thing is that, that uh, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, that's something that now we know about systemic racism. There's lots of problems. First generation people, we're going to have to design processes to really help people out, given that there's a lot of barriers. And you just don't appoint one person. And that's what's happening in a lot of campuses. Let's give Pat the job. And he's the DEI guy. Our job is done. You're going to have to have a huge office. You're going to have to resource it really well and have the best and brightest people possible. So we begin to change things. We can be a lever of change, tremendous societal change in higher education. Well, I love all that information. It's great. I love talking education with you because I remember the days of the Total Education Hour. Uh, Pat, you would have enjoyed it when we were going uh, late night on and radio, straight radio conversation that ended up live on WRCT, which is 88.3 in Pittsburgh, that was on uh, Fridays. I remember those days in radio, college education, just talking education and just where we're going. And it's a cyclical thing. And I think that the university professors, I mean, university presidents have to understand we're in a cyclical thing. Education, again, during certain economic times, it's harder to get people to attend. Now really work on things, figure out who the next administration is and how they're gonna invest in education, make those changes from the high schools and elementary schools. And then you'll have more kids wanting to go to college again because they're gonna see the value of it. And it's a cycle. I don't know. We go back and talk about the 60s in education or the 50s. It probably we had a, 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 almost the same kind of conversation. We'll always have that. But you brought up some great points that people need to think about for sure. And the website again? The SantaHandGroup.com.
Fantastic. I love talking education with you and uh, we'll definitely chat again. All right. Thank you, Neil. Take care. You're, you're listening and watching the Neil Haley show. We'll be back. In just a We're back to the Neil Haley show. And my guest today is going to be very, very interesting. Uh, he's author Nate Burt, and he wrote a book called Frozen, but not forgotten directly for me. So how are you? Uh, Frozen, but not forgotten. I appreciate it, Nate. Thanks for stopping by, man. Yeah, Neil, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Exactly. So let's kind of go into specifically why you wrote the book. Yeah, so um, Frozen But Not Forgotten is really a how-to guide for parents or for those who are simply interested in this topic of frozen human embryos. And a lot of people don't realize that many, many couples across uh, America face infertility and undergo what's called in in vitro fertilization. And as part of that process, one of the the blessings or the gifts they have is as many couples are able to conceive a child when they otherwise wouldn't be able to. However, there are often remaining embryos and there are about a million frozen embryos in storage in the United States alone. And those are very viable babies in many cases. And for couples who go through IVF and are unsure what to do with those remaining embryos, they can do one of several things. They can uh, donate them to research. They can have them discarded. They can place them in frozen um, storage in perpetuity, or they can decide to place those for adoption. And so my wife and I adopted frozen embryos, and now we have our four-year-old daughter, Phoebe, as a result of that process. And so it's a really timely conversation as a lot of people are thinking about Uh, the national dialogue, some recent conversations about the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade. Um, This is really another another topic that uh, involves sort of um, life and the opportunity to really build a family in a way that's very unfamiliar to many people. So is that uh, less money to be able to do that because they're available? Those frozen embryos? Yeah, great question. So typically frozen embryo adoption is less expensive than a traditional domestic adoption and certainly less expensive than an uh, international adoption. That being said, it's not for everyone, right? So some, um, uh, a, a woman or a mom has to be in, in the right health. So certainly you want to get advice from your doctor before pursuing something like embryo adoption. Uh, our adoption, I think it ranged between $15,000 and $20,000. So it's still, uh, it still is a cost. But for our family, we felt that it was completely worth it. Wow. And so what's the reason for writing the book? Just to really tell the story? You bet. Really to tell the story, you know, for families that either have been through IVF and are not sure what to do with their embryos, for couples who are looking to build their family, and really for those who are simply curious, you know, Frozen But Not Forgotten is the book that really guides people through that process. And it's really designed to simply get the word out simply because there's not a lot of publicity or information readily available in the public domain. So what is the ultimate goal for you? Is is it just the book or you want to create a movement? You know, I I think um, the movement started long before my family and I got underway really back in the early 1990s is when frozen embryo adoption first began. I think we really do want to contribute to the movement. I think we want people to be aware that frozen embryo adoption is an option. I think we want more families who are struggling to conceive to have this as an option. And frankly, for families like mine that have been able to conceive um, in in the natural way, I think there are opportunities for us too to give these embryos a chance at life because ultimately uh, our perspective is that this is human life. These are babies that have the opportunity to grow up and to contribute to our world. And so Frozen But Not Forgotten is really a book designed to, to foster and spur that movement forward. That's fantastic. It's great information for sure. And the ultimate goal and you're out there. And what's the fee- been the feedback of your book so far? You're getting a lot of people. You know, the feedback. Yeah, thanks for the question, Neil. The feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. I think a lot of people were looking for a resource like this. This is really the book I wish that I had had as my wife and I were going through this process of frozen embryo adoption. And so I think, um, you know, this is really an opportunity to uh, to give back in that way. And I hope more people are able to be blessed as a result of it. All right. Best place we can find information on purchase the book. Where can we go? You bet. Anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can also go to frozenbutnotforgotten.com. Again, frozenbutnotforgotten.com. And you can pick up a copy of the book there as well. Thanks, Nate. Appreciate you. Thanks, Neil, so much. Take care. You're, you're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Rob Rosselli Show. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Rob Rosselli. Rob, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, Neil. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Absolutely. And there's, I'm, I'm telling you right now, Things continue to go sideways, aren't they? Well, going sideways, they're actually going south. Um, as, as at least as far as the world, and especially the United States, is concerned, between the economy 
this illegal immigration situation, uh, the war in the Ukraine, uh, where we're getting ourselves involved, we're, we're depleting our own munitions and, and, and money. We're sending money, billions and billions of dollars to Ukraine, you know, in a country we have absolutely no business being involved in at the cost of our own citizens. So you can see where the priorities of this administration really are. Uh, I personally think what they're trying to do is cover up a lot of crimes from the Biden crime family. And he's, and apparently there's a lot of these bio bioweapons labs going over there, going on over there. Uh, there's ties to COVID, there's ties to Hunter Biden. Uh, and the Russians have captured apparently many of these many of these labs and i think what they're trying to do is circumvent treaties and biological weapons treaties and this sort of thing just like the wuhan lab over in china with, with dr fauci so-called dr fauci um you know that illegality and, and illegal weapons research and biological weapons research so there's a lot going on there's a lot more going on behind the scenes uh than just you know listening to fox news and Vladimir Putin, you know, Putin is a thug and a, and a, and a criminal and a war criminal. And look, he may be, I'm not defending the guy, but from his perspective, I don't think he had a choice but to go in and invade Ukraine between the aforementioned labs and all the corruption. Plus there's this, you know, Donbass region, I believe it is, is a sizable Russian population that was trying to break away from the regime that was illegally placed in there in 2014 by the Obama-Biden regime. You know, this, so, the, you know, the, the Ukrainian government, the current government, you know, we're supposed to be, you know, they're made out to be these heroes and there's no prizes themselves. Absolutely not. Um, and on the home front, they got this abortion situation and these maniacs, these bloodthirsty abortion maniacs out there just protesting, literally, Really protesting to the death uh, to keep their, I guess their. How do I word this? I mean, these these people are nothing but death merchants. Um, from the death of newborn babies to you know, to really, I mean, I wouldn't put it beyond them to, to wish death upon these Supreme Court justices that that want to overturn Roe versus Wade. And it got, um, it got leaked, right, Rob? That's what happened. They leaked it, and that's what's causing all of the protests. What the decision would well, have been. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it got it was leaked because they're trying to intimidate the justices that are voting for the overturning of Roe versus Wade. But the, the problem is that it doesn't eliminate abortion. These people don't seem to understand that. It's just, it just eliminates it from being a constitutional right the way it's the way it's presented right now and, he, and then each state and then each state decides instead of a constitutional right got it yeah each state would decide and you know i don't know what number of states would actually outlaw it i mean they, you know in liberal states like new york new jersey california rhode island it's gonna it's gonna stay uh, as a matter of fact i came across an article where you know California wants to make itself a so-called abortion sanctuary. You know, so those death merchants out there and this Newsom, this, this Governor Newsom, you know. So it's not going to be illegal. You're just going to have to travel. So all of a sudden, it's just kind of funny. You know, illegal immigrants can travel all over the country, you know, courtesy of the federal government. That's not an issue. But, you know, traveling to a different state to get an abortion suddenly is a uh, Right, the death knell for abortion. So, like, what it boils down to is these people—they don't—they don't really believe in. They say they're for the people and democracy, but you're seeing it now. They're not—not not really. If they really were, they—they they wouldn't be all these protests. They would—they would actually welcome the elimination of Roe versus Wade, and they would say, "Fine, put it—put it to the people. You know, let the people vote on it." But they're not doing that. They're doing the exact opposite. Uh, they're intimidating Supreme Court justices. They're, they're, I think it was out in Portland, Oregon. I actually firebombed a, a crisis pregnancy center. Um, oh, so you're not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not dealing with rational people here. Uh, well, and you, uh, you, you really have a divide in this country that you've never seen since probably, I think, the uh, 60s or 70s, right? The divide that we're in. 
Well, I think divide's always been there. Now it's just manifesting itself. Um, you know, Roe v. Wade was it's been around since I think nineteen seventy three or whatever. Now, but now that they're getting rid of it like they should, um, now the divide's just just now you're able to visualize it and see it. Um, um, what maniacs these people really are. Um, yeah, and then, then you got this governor of Virginia and, and other people, and you know, now you know in California, you know, going for post-birth abortion. So in other words, a baby can be born, and it would be you know, parents decide, or you know, at the birth process, the birthing process, you know, you can still abort the baby, um, right. which, which is murder, you know, you know, which is torture. I mean, you know, they, they suck the brains out with a catheter, and they. You know, I read some of the accounts, you know, and they, you know, they, they have these scissors, they chop the limbs off. And, you know, it's torture. Um, there's no other word for it, you know, and people sit, sit here in this country and, and look at, you know, Hitler's Holocaust and say what an awful thing that was. And, you know, Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 